Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's called a hemorrhagic disease, so it's going to involve bleeding from the nose, may involve bleeding from the nose, mouth, possibly the eyes. It is an extremely gruesome uh, disease to see in operation. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Brian Patrick O'Malley talking about the yellow fever epidemic that rocked Philadelphia during the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Iron and Paper, purveyor of authentic artifacts of the American Revolution. Visit them at ironandpaper.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor and friend of the show, Brian Patrick O'Malley talking about the yellow fever outbreak that that really brought Philadelphia to a standstill during the American Revolution. There's no question that we're living in extraordinarily difficult times, maybe the worst time um, as far as the danger to everyday life for the average person. Uh, and of course, I'm talking about the threat of epidemic disease and there's no easy way to talk about it. Uh, and I'm certainly not a doctor. Uh, but as a historian, the one thing I can say uh, is that we've been here before. Maybe not in the 21st century. Maybe not in the digital age. But for most of human history, the, the threat of epidemic disease, the invisible enemy, has been present. And while looking at how former uh, colonists and Americans dealt with these problems is not going to certainly solve our current crisis, uh, it can show us how they thought about the problem, how they confronted it. Some of it seems trivial because they didn't have that uh, full understanding of medical knowledge we have today. But a lot of it, and I think if you read Brian's article and certainly listen to today's interview, a lot of what we can take from it is the human emotional side of it. The things you're feeling now, the uncertainty, the fear, uh, the anxiety, that's been there before. And you're not alone. So if we could... Uh, put on our historian's hat, give ourselves a bit of an escape from the day-to-day that we're facing right now, and really consider what Brian Patrick O'Malley is going to be talking about today. Because remember, again, this is not new territory in the grand scheme of history. Uh, And at the end, as you'll hear from this interview, you always have each other to rely on. That being said, please enjoy our interview with Brian Patrick O'Malley. Brian Patrick O'Malley, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Remind us of your background. You are a repeat guest. Well, I have a, uh, a Master of Arts in American History from the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, um, mainly on the colonial and revolutionary periods of American history. And I've done some research on uh, ethnic history and also the uh, history of the transatlantic uh, slave trade. My first running across uh, details of uh, yellow fever. This might be a difficult question given our circumstances, but what first drew your interest into this subject? Well, Don Haggis, uh, the editor, was kind enough to uh, ask if I'd write about this particular epidemic, which is one that I have uh, seen references to periodically, uh, reading about the founding, but I've never looked into until now. Yellow fever, I, I knew something about from, from the slave trade. Uh, and uh, also a very interesting uh, article. It was a, actually a book chapter called Revolutionary Mosquitoes and how yellow fever was a factor on, in why uh, um, Africans uh, fighting for independence in Haiti were successful, particularly successful against French troops that arrived with no previous exposure. So um, I've heard a little bit about the, the, the disease uh, from that. So, but this was the first time I've looked at the Philadelphia outbreak. What was yellow fever and what did the symptoms look like? There are two phases. In the first one, I hate to say if you're lucky, I mean, if you get yellow fever, I, I don't know how lucky we can call that. The first phase is the milder one. There, there is a fever. There's backache. There's a collection of pains that will surface at that phase. Then there's a one-day remission. Now, for some, that, that actually is the end of it. Then, um, really, it's more the practical joke. Uh, it's get your hopes up that it's over. The day after that remission, the second phase starts. And that is maybe seven to ten days of uh, pretty bad symptoms. This can be fatal to about 50% of uh, the adults who contract it, uh, that's going to be the liver damage that causes the yellowing of the skin and the eyes that gives yellow fever its name. It's going to involve that high fever, which sometimes can lead to violent delirium. And it's going to be accompanied with, um, with bleeding. This is, it's called a hemorrhagic disease. So it's going to involve bleeding from the nose, may involve bleeding from the nose, mouth, possibly the eyes, and, and elsewhere. It's, uh, it is an extremely gruesome uh, disease to see in operation. How did people in Philadelphia fight this disease, which was very foreign to them? Well, the response of about 20,000 was to leave the city as quickly as they could. For those who stayed, uh, you had competing, um, competing medical professionals like... Uh, Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration, who was not excessively into ble- but he was more of an advocate of mercurial purges, and uh, but also bleeding. And then you had French doctors um, who were a, a little bit milder. Some they did use some moderate bleeding, but they tended to go with teas and uh, tea. Um, and uh, other 
milder f- drinks like, say, lemon and lime juice and a, a, a bit easier on their patients. And, and both sides, though, could point to some people who survived to, to justify their particular course of action. But the people themselves, what they had was uh, there was still and the medical professionals were still buying into this too a very medieval idea that miasms that stench that smells could be bad smells could be the source of disease. So a lot of the popular cures involved um, basically creating competing smells, uh, carrying a handkerchief wet with vinegar, holding that to your nose, holding um, a bottle with uh, smelling salts near your nose. That was very common. And uh, unfortunately, that did not prove very effective because it's spread by mosquito rather than person to person contact and rather than um you know stink causing it without a real understanding of modern medicine in your research and your article you talk about a lot of uh, unusual remedies did any of these stand out to you additional ones don't immediately jump out at me uh i did find it it was strange to see how how often they uh it was the first time I had run across some of these things. There's uh, something called Four Thieves Vinegar. Hadn't read up about the plague. What struck me is that some of these, some of this thinking and some of the remedies went back that far. That these had, these were things that people had been using to to fight the, you know, the bubonic plague for a while. So that that part surprised me. You break down your article into heroic acts and disappointing acts. Let's. Focus on the positive first. Uh, what were some acts of heroism that you found in your research? The uh, the merchant, a uh, French immigrant, uh, um, Gerard, had volunteered to superintend uh, a hospital that was created uh, in a co- on a country estate called uh, Bush Hill, and uh, he gave up, you know. Well, I don't know how successful the practice was, you know, his trade was going to be during this spell, but it was seen as a tremendous self-sacrifice, particularly for those who thought it was contagious. Now, the the leading French um, humanitarians were convinced that this was not contagious. Um, Dr. DeVise was sure that it wasn't. He also volunteered at um, Bush Hill, and he was remarked upon as being very compassionate, making his daily visits, holding patients by the hand, um, very kind um, treatment people were receiving at Bush Hill, uh, even though they were in terrible agony from the disease. Um, Tremendous charity by um, African-Americans in the city who were, um, some of them serving as nurses, getting only what people were willing to pay, uh, but not, in many cases, not asking for anything, caring for the sick. Um, uh, there were two reverends, um, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who knew knew of a young woman who said, no, I, I won't take any money. I'm going to have to paraphrase. She wouldn't get, take any money because if I took money to help you, she told one couple, God will see it and he might let me die of this disease. So I'm just going to come for no money and do whatever I can for you. So she took care of them uh, 
that night. Unfortunately, they did pass by morning, but they were they were ill when they they called her. That they were pretty far along already. But there were tremendous acts of charity by African Americans uh, and by the the French immigrants, but also, of course, by by English speaking whites as well. Um, that that really stood out. Mayor Clarkson stayed when a number of city officials were part of the evacuation and his service almost daily um, presiding on the committee that met um, daily to superintend whatever came up related to orphanages. The orphanage, uh, Bush Hill and other matters relating to poor relief. It was very admirable. You saw a lot of very poor performances, I guess we could say, out of humanity during this time. Um, what were some of the disappointments that you encountered? Several people who wrote accounts were pretty horrified and disappointed by the number of cases of people who abandoned loved ones, people who ran from family members who became ill, um, wives leaving husbands, husbands deserting their wives on their sickbed. Um, parents abandoning sick children, uh, children leaving their elderly parents um, to face the uh, ravages of illness. That was disturbing to the people who witnessed that. Um, That was one of the more common ones. Every now and then it got to the point where you would almost compare it to a hate crime. Um, The reverends, um, Jones and Allen mentioned uh, one man who basically um, insulted and then threatened to clobber a woman who had recovered from the disease, but uh, her sister was still ill. And uh, he, his rude remarks led to an altercation and uh, he, um, the intervention of uh, a passing African-American, a good Samaritan, was able to stop him from injuring her. But the the abandonment was the, was a, a big theme, and then periodically um, acts almost of violence were also reported towards the ill. What are the real strengths of your article? And I think the most fascinating parts of this research is the profound role that African Americans played in the outbreak, uh, really performing some heroic acts. Uh, could you? Tell us that story. Oh, well, thank you. It was there was a, a popular misconception that had been formed, mainly uh, from a 1748 outbreak of yellow fever in Charlestown, later Charleston, South Carolina, um, where a doctor Lining observed that you know mulattoes, mestizos, people of mixed um, European and Native American ancestry, and whites were falling to this disease, but um, African American blacks were resistant to it. And he said that they simply are, there's something in their constitution that they don't, they are not susceptible to this disease. And uh, Dr. Rush went so far as to publish in a Philadelphia paper, this quote from Lining to reassure whites that it would be safe to hire um, black nurses and and black attendants, and also to give an encouragement to, as he directly said in the the article he he submitted to the 
the paper that this was a noble opportunity for African-Americans to show their uh, gratitude to Philadelphia, which was a center of anti-slavery sentiment. And so that was an unfortunate setup because in South Carolina, most of the enslaved population at that point were African born. And if you come from a place where yellow fever is endemic, you probably survive it as a child. And uh, that gives you lifelong immunity. As a childhood illness, it tends to be much milder. Uh, so the blacks that Dr. Lining observed in South Carolina were not American born. The American born blacks who, who were being hit by it in Philadelphia had no such previous exposure, but they were serving as nurses. The, um, the Africa Society or Free Africa Society um, provided nurses um, to care for the sick. Jones and Allen assumed responsibility for burial detail and hired um, hired several men to help them in that uh, rather uh, grueling work. And uh, the service that they those reverends incidentally provided to orphans who were in the house when they came to retrieve the, the bodies of uh, dead parents and the care that they would incidentally have to, that they charitably showed to the poor that they encountered in their rounds. There was constant service by African-Americans serving as nurses, attendants, and in burial details that uh, is just... Uh, it's in some ways heartbreaking to read about, to see the suffering that they encountered. It's just uh, amazing. And many of them did this when their own relatives were at home battling the disease. They were out being called from house to house. As soon as one patient had either gotten through it or had died, they were being called to the next house. And in many cases, they were not getting enough rest. It, it was just staggering to read that. In your opinion, did those brave men and women get the credit that they deserved? Sadly, no. Dr. Rush and his account was very, um, was very dutiful in reminding people of the tremendous service that was performed. Um, Matthew uh, Carey also acknowledged it um, in some ways a, a little backhanded compliment, but he, he was very careful to acknowledge it. So several accounts did acknowledge African-American efforts to combat the disease. Overwhelmingly, uh, Reverends Jones and Allen, uh, in their, they co-authored an account of the, their community's um, fight against the disease, said that really whites seemed oblivious to um, the suffering that African-Americans were going through with the disease and uh, with, um, with black efforts to assist the, the ill and the dying. And uh, it struck me, too, in the accounts that, that people wrote or letters you see written by whites, African-Americans, are they appear as extras in the background of the stories that whites are telling. Uh, oh, there was hardly anybody on the street, oh, except for an African-American uh, driving the cart carrying the dead carrying the sick to the hospital or, oh, this man was deserted by 
family, employees, and servants, and there was nobody to take care of them. Oh, except an African-American attendant who showed up to take care of them. It, again and again, they, it, they appear incidentally, but um, it, it, it was a strange thing to read. It's like they're main players in it, but they, they're in the background of the story, the way, the way some whites would tell it. This might be a difficult question, given where we find ourselves right now, but what can we take away from this event? One is we have to be better prepared for the next one. Uh, the other is, I would have to say, trying to police our um, how we treat people uh, who are ill. Because I, I was very self-conscious now that you you hear somebody sneeze or cough, you kind of, it's like hearing a, uh, a gunshot go off. Uh, and you kind of turn and you give like a disapproving look, like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be out now. And you, and I realize it's not quite the same thing as like cursing at somebody if you know they have a disease, but um, policing how virulently you react to somebody who happens to be ill. Um, there, another thing that I think we um, would want to worry about is uh, being prepared to deal with um, being able to help. I think once we're out of quarantine, um, my to-do list would probably be learning something about first aid, uh, CPR, to be useful in, you know, there are the big emergencies like pandemics, then there are the one-person emergencies, like somebody choking in a restaurant or somebody drown, you know, nearly drowning in a community pool. You want to be able to be of some use um, if trouble like this happens. Another thing I was really struck by, and I don't mean to lay a burden on people who are dealing with clinical depression, but one thing that was observed was that a negative mindset was often observed in people who ultimately succumbed. Now, I, to be fair, when you're bleeding from the mouth and nose spontaneously, it's kind of hard to be optimistic. But their observation, the reverends, for instance, said those who cheerfully bore up, and I, it's hard to imagine being cheerful with, with symptoms like that, those who cheerfully bore up managed to get through it. There was a real pessimism and a real uh, morbid fatalism or resignation that some people had even before developing the disease, um, people had given up and, and seemed to treat it as hopeless. And I, I think to whatever extent you can find mechanisms to fight. Um, if, if you're already, working with a therapist on depression, you probably have already worked on some ways of reminding yourself that, you know, the cloud you're under will pass and you just have to make it to the other side. I think it's the other side of the depression, not necessarily the other side of the veil, uh, but uh, trying to keep a positive outlook and having something to look forward to and making plans beyond, in our case, being shut in, if, if that's what your situation is, as it is in the UK and in, um, for many people in the US, that I, I'd say try to keep positive to the extent that you can.
Brian Patrick O'Malley, thanks again. Thank you, and it was an honor to be a return guest. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.